All right. Good morning, everybody. It's good to see you this morning. Fourth and fifth graders, you are dismissed to your class. If you don't know where it is, just follow the rest of the kids to the conference room in the hallway. Fourth and fifth graders, you are dismissed. Speaking of fifth graders, we had a week of camp with fifth and sixth graders this past week. Had an excellent time, and we brought home alive every fifth and sixth grader that we took with us. So you are welcome. You're welcome. That was great. Had a great time. Uh, I think we set a record for Choco Tacos sold at Canteen this year, and uh, it, was a, it was a good week. Before I get into my message this morning, let me cover a couple of things in terms of where we're headed, where we're going. Let me briefly just simply say there is one week left of recess, which, I mean, seven weeks ago, it felt like it was three years away, and now it is just one week, and it's unbelievable to me that we, the Livingstones Church here at 718 East Dahmer Avenue, pulled off a eight-week day camp for all the kids at Miami Hills Apartments. And so I'm telling you what, that's phenomenal, phenomenal. <laughs> Meredith Waltman has done, done fantastic. The counselors have done fantastic. The volunteers in this church, I love you. I appreciate you. You have done phenomenal. So thank you for that one week. Here, and it's going to be a good week. They're going to Potato Creek. They're going to some farm. They're going, what else are they doing? Going to see a, a movie, uh, probably a rated R movie. No, I'm just kidding. There's no... <laughs> So I don't know, but it's going to be a good week, so a good final week, and the temperatures are like 78 to 82 and sunny all week, so it's going to be phenomenal, so good. If you've not participated in recess, you should show up this week just to go to a movie together, and you'll have a great time. Another thing, uh, we mentioned as we entered into the summertime, we were going back to two services. Last year, we started three services. We had a 9.30, 11.30, and 5.30, and then as the summer started, summer schedules, we decided to go back to the two morning services. So when we enter after the weekend after Labor Day, which is that September 11th, is that first Sunday, we're going to go back to three services. But rather than doing a 9.30, 11.30, and 5.30, we're going to do three morning services at 9 o'clock, 10.30, and 11.55. 11.55. It's 11.55. So three morning services. We're going to try to grow those three services. So just as a side note, keep that in your mind as we, because what that means is everybody's got to change. There's no longer a 9.30, 11.30, so everybody has to shift, and those will be the three services that we will offer beginning September 11th. Another thing I want to let you know about is growth groups are usually going on right now, and so I don't know if you've noticed, but there's really not growth group. There's been no announcements, no sign-ups. We take September off, and then October we launch a whole other series of growth groups. But as we entered this year, we talked about really wanting to see connection and community and spiritual transformation be t- two main themes for the Living Stones Church this year, and we really wanted to grow in those two areas. And what that means for us is kind of everything goes on the table to talk about, well, is this working? Is it not working? And the way we've done growth groups here at the Living Stones Church is they're eight weeks uh, uh, in duration. And we do them four times in the year. And so you sign up for an eight-week block of, and there's lots of different topics, doc, different leaders, different themes. They meet all over the city. And then, uh, you know, then it's done at the end of the eight weeks. Then we take a month off, and we sign up for a whole new rotation. That's the way it goes over and over again. What we've discovered is that was very helpful to us when we began them. But now as we're beginning to assess, does it really build community and connection We think it has the possibility, and we say that, but only if there's just great chemistry uh, going on in that particular group. That eight weeks typically is not long enough duration to really do life with people and to have good connections and good community. And the other thing in terms of spiritual transformation, as we ask, is real transformation taking place in these groups? We say, yes, it's possible, and we have those stories. But again, we think both content and duration, we need to do something else. So we are going to relaunch in January of 2012 a whole new way to do small groups here at the Living Stones Church. That is we're going to go longer. We're going to start in January, and they're going to go for a four-month block of time. 
and then we'll hit summer. We'll probably take the summer off, and then we'll start again in the fall of 2012 and go for nine months. And there'll probably be more, uh, you know, it won't be as much as driven around a topic, but probably your life station. Now, you're free to go wherever you want, but if you're like, hey, I'd like to hang out with some young singles, or unless you're married, then don't do that. I mean, right? You get, you get, <laughs> So I said that. Or your life station is you're married without kids, you'd like to be with other couples that are married without kids, or you are retired, whatever your life station. And again, you can go wherever you want, but we're trying to go for what, what is it that we might be able to have greater connections and fellowship and community. And so we're going to do that entirely differently as we start January. Now, at the same time, we knew it's probably not a good idea to not have anything but Sunday morning from now until January. So here's what we're going to do. Starting September 21st, it is a Wednesday night, we're going to do what we're calling Kingdom GED. And what we're, trying to th- what we're trying to think through is, if we just had to start from, the, like, somebody didn't know anything about Jesus or Christianity, if they wanted just a real basic, I mean, just what are the essentials of the kingdom of God and the teachings of Jesus, that's what we want to do on Wednesdays. And this is how we're going to do it. We're going to clear all these chairs out of here, bring in all of our round tables. So we'll be sitting at round tables, and on the tables will be things like uh, chips and salsa and stuff like snackage, because that's very important when you get together for these sorts of things. And then we're going to spend uh, 12 weeks, and there should be an insert in your bulletin, right? Let me pull that out here. An insert in your bulletin that looks like this that has different things. So like one week, we'll just talk about what is the kingdom of God? Like this is the central message of Jesus. What does it even mean to talk about the kingdom of God? And we want to have small group discussions at our tables. There's going to be some teaching time. We want to have it interactive. One week, we just want to talk about, well, how do you pray for the sick? Because our guess is people are wanting to do that because there's people in your life that are sick and need prayers and need healing, but you've never seen that. You don't know what that looks like, so we're just going to do it together. Like, we'll just role play and show this is what it looks like. This is what it means to have authority in Jesus and be able to pray over people who are sick and what that looks like. We're going to talk about how do you study the Bible. And so, we'll, I mean, you understand, we could spend 12 weeks on just how to study the Bible. We're going to do it in one night. And so just we'll bring our Bibles and we'll just open it up and we'll start learning. So there's lots of different topics. What is your spiritual gift? A lot of people have questions about that. We're just going to take a assessments, like just real questionnaires and assessments, so you can walk out with a better idea of, oh, this is the spiritual gift that I think God has given me to use for the body of Christ. We find that there are people who are, are stuck in sin and need help getting out of sin. What do you do with those sorts of things? What do you do? How about the practicing the spiritual disciplines without living in a monastery? We want to do things like how to share your faith without being obnoxious, right? Because Christians can be very obnoxious when it comes to sharing their faith. So I've got lots of unbelieving friends. I think I'm going to ask three of them just to show up, and we'll just have a panel discussion. We'll just ask them, what is obnoxious to you in terms of Christians sharing their faith, and how can we do that well? And so we're just going to do that together. Dealing with the demonic church, end times, those are all topics. But there's limited space, which means those we've got like 10 round tables. It's got about 120 people can fit in here. And so when we get 120 people signed up, it's closed, which means... You should sign up as quickly as you can. Do so at our website, livingstones.cc. We're going to offer offer child care. So if you've got little kids who need child care, sign them up so we know how many kids to expect. And then uh, I think it's going to be a fantastic journey. We'll go from September 21st to uh, the second week of December, taking Thanksgiving week off. Now, just as a side note, because there's limited space, don't sign up if you don't plan on coming. Like, that happens here a lot. Like, people get all excited about the announcement, then they sign up, and then they don't show up because you're taking a spot. So if you're really planning on coming, sign up. But if you're not, then don't sign up. But I think it's something that I want to commend to you uh, going down here starting September 21st. Okay, are we ready for our message? That was a long announcement. Here we go. Now, we've been talking the last two weeks about communion. 
right? We've had two weeks where we talked about the Christian practice of communion. And the reason why here at the Living Stones Church is because we come from so many different backgrounds and so many different denominations, and there's just not a central denomination that ties us all together where we have a common experience. And because of that, we have a lot of questions about communion, how we do it, why we do it. So we just took two weeks to talk about what it is that we do and how we do it and why we do it. But second I would put up there is the topic of baptism. Like because of that same factor, we all come from different places, different backgrounds, different experiences. We've experienced it differently. We've seen it differently. There seems to be a lot of questions simply about uh, baptism. And my guess is the person sitting next to you has a totally different assumption and expectation than you do. So for some, you come out of what's called infant baptism was your upbringing, or some call it christening. Others of you practice adult believers' baptism. Some practice sprinkling. Some practice pouring, while others practice immersion. Some practice one dunk, and there's some churches that do three dunks, right? Some say in the name of Jesus only. Some have a Trinitarian confession. And the next thing you know, there's so many different ways of doing baptism. And if you don't belong to any denomination or any church background or this whole stuff is new to you, what is weirder than watching one adult dunk another adult in what looks like a little jacuzzi in the church building? I mean, it's just overall a very strange experience. And so we want to talk this morning about what is this whole baptism thing and where did it come from? But since we have these backgrounds that are diverse and different, the only thing I know to appeal to that we all agree on is the Word of God. So we're just going to go to the Scriptures this morning and try to figure out some of its teachings in regards to baptism. <clears throat> Let me tell you, this, one of the reasons why I think Jesus is so brilliant, and there's lots of reasons why I think Jesus is brilliant, but one of them is he always seems to take something that could remain mystical or spiritual or ethereal or heavenly-minded or lofty or conceptual, nebulous, and he brings it tangible and concrete. Just like communion. <clears throat> communion could be a time where it's conceptual, it's theoretical, it's heavenly-minded, it's very lofty. And what does he do? He brings it down to bread and wine. Two things that are very common, two things that are very tangible, two things that we can hold, that we can feel, that we can taste, right? It becomes very concrete. And this is the same thing, I think, in regards to baptism. The whole concept behind baptism can remain conceptual, theoretical, ethereal, heavenly-minded, and what Jesus seems to do all the time is he brings it down to something that is tangible and concrete in the symbol of water. Something that's widely accessible, and yet God seems to give the H2O a spiritual significance. It's interesting to me to study initiation rites. And you probably have experienced them in your own life where you've got involved in an organization or maybe something out of school or maybe it's in your workplace or maybe it's just kind of even growing up in your culture. Times where you are initiated into something else. Like, initi- like for example, <clears throat> I grew up, I was, in, I was in the Boy Scouts. Now, this is just going to be between the just us, okay, so don't tell anyone outside of here, but I was an Eagle Scout in the Boy Scouts, and um, one of the things that they have in the Boy Scouts is what's called the Order of the Arrow. Now, not everybody gets into the Order of the Arrow. Now, everyone could be a Boy Scout as long as you're a boy and you're in the I mean, but not anybody can be in the Order of the Arrow. And so I remember going to these week-long camps, and there at Camp Tamarack, they would do this Order of the Arrow ceremony where just a few of the Boy Scouts who were really good Boy Scouts got chosen in this ornate ceremony, like these kids dressed up like they were Indian. I mean, it's like crazy. And then, and then they're ushered off into what is an initiation rite. And for 24 hours, the Boy Scout has very little to eat. He's supposed to be in silence the whole time. And he's supposed to be isolated, sleeping out in the open from everybody else. And he's supposed to do a service project within those 24 hours of time. And then in that, then, you get initiated into the Order of the Arrow. 
Well, one day I'm at church, or I'm not church camp, at Boy Scout camp, and I'm sitting there looking forward to, oh, please pick me, please pick me. And what they do is they come around you, and they tap you on your shoulder, and then they have you stand up, and they cart you off. And Chad Newport, who's running the uh, computer in the back, he was with me in the Order of the Arrow. So I'm outing you too, Chad. Chad was in the Boy Scouts. So. And so we get ushered off to 24 hours of silence and very little eating and service projects and having to sleep out in the open. Not that there's like bears or wolves in Michigan, but that's where we were. So I mean, and so... And what it becomes is it's just an initiation, right? And then you get this, this sash that goes over your uniform that says Order of the Arrow, and you get to be a big deal in your troop, Janie, because you're in the Order of the Arrow. But the only ones who got in is when they go through that initiation, right? Now, some of you might have been in a fraternity or sorority at your, uh, at your colleges or universities. You have initiation rites, which we call hazing, that, right? And so, uh, I went to Harding University in Searcy, Arkansas, and we didn't have fraternities because they weren't last national chapters. We had what was called social clubs, and I was in TNT. And the reason why I wanted to be in TNT is because my dad was in TNT, and my uncle was in TNT, so I wanted to be in TNT. And so there was a week, they called it Pledge Week, and for a week, you pretty much get hazed. But if you have my personality, you love it because you're like, they're embarrassing you, but you kind of enjoy the attention. That's where, I, where I'm at. And so things like this, one, they, they kind of give you a nickname. It usually goes with your name. And since my name was Sam, they wanted to give me the nickname Shuz and then Sam. So when you put it together, it's Shazam. And so they had me wear red tights and a yellow cape and a big S. And I had to run around the university all day shouting Shazam as if I were flying to my classes. <laughs> Stuff like that, you know, so you'd be in the cafeteria and they'd want you to feed them. I mean, just real weird stuff, but I loved it. I had a great time with it. Not, not that I like tights, Denise. I just want to say that out loud. I want to say that out loud. But there was a whole pledge class. We called them ple- a whole freshman pledge class that got into TNT. And we were good friends. You know why? Because we were hazed for like a whole week during pledge week. And in the end, you get to this bonding times. and this, That's sort of what initiation rites do. You get bonded to people who are around you and are experiencing the exact same thing. And you're initiated to something else. And you know this just in terms of other cultures. I mean, the Native American culture, some of them have vision quest. If you're growing up in a Jewish culture, what do you get when you're a 13-year-old boy? What do you get to celebrate? A bar mitzvah. What is it? It's an initiation right into manhood. It is something that you are experiencing in tangible, concrete ways that has a, another conceptual idea that you are now becoming a man. I did in June my very first one in the uh, Hispanic culture. You've got a quinceanera, right? Did I say that right? Close enough? Right? So Jennifer had one in the beginning of June. And what is it, Jennifer? It's a ushering into Jennifer is now a woman as it's right something concrete, something tangible. And so you have also the Maasai in Africa. Uh, they take the males and they hunt lions got to go on a line, like a real legitimate lion hunt, and that's how they prove themselves to be a man. The Aborigines in Australia, they have a walkabout where an adolescent boy is sent into the outback for six months. Isn't that crazy? Six months. Or in America, it might simply mean uh, moving out of your parents' basement. That could be your initiation (laughs) right. I don't know. But they are tangible experiences and symbols that mark something that is much more significant. They make the spiritual and ethereal real and concrete. And baptism is sort of like that. It is putting something tangible and concrete and attaching it to a spiritual reality. So let's just begin at the very beginning in terms of the scriptures of baptism. Where does baptism come from? The very first time we hear about it, as we're reading through the New Testament, comes in Matthew chapter 3, and there's a guy named John who seems to be doing this so much he gets a nickname. John the baptizer, John the Baptist. And he's actually related to Jesus. He's Jesus' cousin. He's an older cousin by about six months, and he's a weird dude, like very eccentric, wears camel hair, eats nasty food. I mean, he just, he's an odd duck, but 
people seem to be attracted to his message of repentance. And so this is what it says in John chapter 3, beginning verse 1. In those days, John the Baptist came preaching in the desert of Judea and saying, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is near. And this is he who was spoken of through the prophet Isaiah, a voice of one calling in the desert, Prepare the ways for the Lord. Make straight paths for him. John's clothes were made of camel's hair, which I can't imagine would feel comfortable, would you? I mean, just especially the Judean desert, it gets hot. and uh, just, uh. Anyhow. And he had a leather belt around his waist, and his food was locust and wild honey. People went out to him from Jerusalem and all Judea and the whole region of the Jordan. And this is what they were doing, verse 6. Confessing their sins, they were baptized by him in the river Jordan. But when he saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees coming to where he was baptizing, he said to them, now as a side note, this is not how you win friends, but this is John the Baptist. You brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the coming wrath? Produce fruit in keeping with repentance, and do not think you could say to yourselves, well, we have Abraham as our father. I tell you that of these stones, God can raise up children for Abraham. The axe is already at the root of the trees, and every tree that does not produce good fruit will be cut down and thrown into fire. I baptize you with water for repentance. Listen to this. But after me will come one who is more powerful than I. In fact, whose sandals I'm not even fit to carry. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand, and he will clear his threshing floor, gathering his wheat into the barn and burning up the shaft with unquenchable fire. Now, what's interesting here is John never explains what he's doing. You under, I mean, in the text, you see John never explains to the crowds, okay, now everybody, this is what we're going to do next. Uh, you're going to come out into the river with me and just stand here next to me and plug your nose, and I'm going to dip you under and bring you back up. He never gives an explanation. It's almost as if they know exactly what he's doing because they do. Because baptism doesn't start with John. Baptism actually predates John. It predates Jesus. It predates Christianity. There is in the Jewish religion a custom called a mikvah. And a mikvah is exactly like a baptism. It is an immersion into a pool of water. In fact, this is an ancient mikvah that they found uh, as they're doing archaeology where people go down. It is for ritual purification. So if you became unclean based on the law in the Old Testament, you could experience the mikvah to become clean again. Now, in the Orthodox Jewish community, which they live all around us here on the south side, right? You see the Orthodox community. All, in fact, their synagogue is right behind our fence line, right? Fence line, one over, is the synagogue. And I think I mentioned earlier, when we were having the underground cafe concerts here, uh, you know, hundreds of kids, bands going on, a couple of the rabbinic students at the synagogue were curious, and they kind of came on over, and they kind of were in my office, and they're asking me all the questions they've always wanted to ask a Christian, they kind of felt like they could, and I showed them our baptistry, and they immediately lit up, because they had the exact same thing in their synagogue for their mikvahs, for their ritual purifications, and so it was just one of those connecting points. And so when John is calling people to baptism, to baptizo in the Greek, which means immersion, what he's calling them to is something that they've already seen, but his message is attached to this is more than just you became unclean because you touched this or this happened. This is for repentance itself. This is to acknowledge that you are a sinner and that you need to repent and turn back to God. And people were driving themselves to John the Baptist because of this message. And so thus they were experiencing the mikvah or the baptism. It was a full immersion. It wasn't sprinkling. It wasn't pouring. In fact, the Greek word baptizo literally means to immerse. 
And you can see from the narratives of the New Testament that immersion seems to be the inference when it's talking about going into the water. From Romans, Paul uses as a symbol the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus and connects it to baptism, which only makes sense in my mind when you go immersion, like the pouring and sprinkling. And so for Paul, so he says in chapter 6, verse 1, What shall we say then? Shall we go on sinning so that grace may increase? By no means. We died to sin. How can we live in it any longer? Or don't you know that all of us who were baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were therefore buried with him through baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, we too may live a new life. And so you see that action of death, burial, and then resurrection in the immersion in baptism and also in the mikvahs. So as we continue on in chapter 3, this is what happens next. Jesus himself gets baptized. Verse 13. Then Jesus came from Galilee to the Jordan to be baptized by John, his cousin. But John tried to deter him, saying, I need to be baptized by you. And do you come to me? Remember, John's baptism is about repentance of sins. And John recognizes Jesus to be the Lamb of God, the Son of God. And we've got this order reversed. If anyone should be doing the baptizing, it should be you baptizing me. To which Jesus simply replies in verse 15, Let it be so now. It is proper for us to do this to fulfill all righteousness. And then John consented. And listen to the story, verse 16. As soon as Jesus was baptized, he went up out of the water. And at that moment, heaven was opened. And he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and and lighting on him. And a voice from heaven said, This is my Son. With him I am well pleased. And so what happens is you continue on in the narratives of Acts, you'll see other stories where every time somebody turns to Jesus, begins to accept Jesus, baptism seems to be a part of it. And so let me just go over a few of them real quick. On the day of Pentecost, on Acts chapter 2, Peter gets up and delivers this amazing gospel sermon, and in the end, those who listened to it thought, uh-oh, I think we just killed the Messiah. What in the world do we do now? And so, Paul, or so Peter answers that. This is verse 37. Now when they heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the other apostles, Brothers, what should we do? And then Peter said to them, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, so that your sins may be forgiven, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promise is for you and for your children and for all who are far away, everyone whom the Lord our God calls to him. And he testified with many other arguments and exhorted them, saying, Save yourselves from this corrupt generation. So those who welcomed his message were baptized. And that day, 3,000 people were added. Could you imagine? about sore arms, doing all that 3,000 baptisms. Woo. Later in Acts chapter 8, the Samaritans begin to turn towards Jesus. It says in verse 12, But when they believed Philip, who was proclaiming the good news about the kingdom of God in the name of Jesus Christ, they were baptized, both men and women. What is this? This seems to be that initiation, right? When somebody turns from this life to Jesus, they experience baptism, a very tangible, concrete thing symbolized in water. Later in chapter 8 again, the Ethiopian eunuch. It says, as they were, verse 36, as they were going along the road, they came to some water, and the eunuch said, look, here's water. What's to prevent me from being baptized? He commanded the chariot to stop, and both of them, Philip and the eunuch, went down into the water, and Philip baptized him. When they came up out of the water, the spear lord snatched Philip away. The eunuch saw him no more, but he went on, but he went on his way rejoicing. The very next chapter, Acts chapter 9, you've got Saul who will become Paul, the apostle Paul. He begins to see, he has this amazing encounter with Jesus on the road to Damascus. And afterwards, after going blind, it says in verse 18, and immediately something like scales fell from his eyes and his sight was restored. And what does he do? Then he got up and got baptized. The very next chapter, you've got the first Gentiles, Cornelius' house. Peter goes and he preaches the gospel to Cornelius and his house. And it's a big deal because these are non-Jews. 
I mean, do the non-Jews, do the Gentiles get into the kingdom of God like the Jews did? And so this is what happens, verse 47. Peter says, can anyone withhold the water for baptizing these people who have received the Holy Spirit just as we have? So he ordered them to be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ. Then they invited him to stay for several days. So you see, over and over again, as people are turning to Jesus, baptism is just a part of it. Later on in the book of Acts, chapter 16, uh, Paul is in a Philippian jail, and a miracle happens, and they all can be free, but they don't. And so the jailer is freaked out because he knows that's death if anyone escapes. And so in the end, he turns to Jesus and says in chapter 16, verse 30, Then he brought them outside and said, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? And they answered this, Believe on the Lord Jesus, and you will be saved, you and your household. And they spoke the word of the Lord to him and to all who were in his house. At the same hour of the night, he took them and washed their wounds. Then he and his entire family were baptized without delay. He brought them up into the house and set food before them, and he and his entire household rejoiced that he become a believer in God. One more, Acts chapter 19, there's some disciples in Ephesus. When they get more instruction from Paul, verse 5, it says, On hearing this, they were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. So just as you read through the New Testament, you're looking for baptism, that's what you'll see in the narrative of Acts. Just over and over again, as people are turning to Jesus, they experience baptism, which kind of goes through, well, how do you get into this Christianity thing? Like, how do you get into the Jesus thing? Baptism seems to be that signpost or initiation rite, and it goes back to the time of Jesus and beyond. Now, what's important is, though, to understand baptism doesn't save you. Jesus saves you. Baptism doesn't earn you a place in the kingdom of God. Grace gives you a place in the kingdom of God. Baptism is simply our response to God's salvation. And this is important because many groups, if you come from a Catholic background or for me, a Church of Christ background, sometimes we spoke in such a way where we had such a heavy, strong baptism tone that in the end it felt like we were saying it is baptism that saves you. But Paul makes it very clear there is nothing we can do, no work we can perform. What saves us is God's grace and his mercy through the blood of Jesus. The consequence of that at times seems to me to be baptism is viewed as sort of a get-out-of-hell card. And I've seen, sometimes the consequence is how we lived it. So we can live our lives any way we want to, but it's okay because we got baptized when we were an infant. So it's sort of our get-out-of-hell card. And, and you just don't see that picture at all in the New Testament. Baptism has attached to it a very meaningful, significant, I'm going to follow after the ways of Jesus. But I, I want to at least say baptism isn't a work we perform to be saved. It is a response that we make to God's grace. But why is it important? Why is it so important to have these signposts or initiation rites? The truth is the spiritual life can be fuzzy. I mean, it just is. Sometimes it's very nebulous. Growing into Jesus can be so gradual and non-spectacular at times that there's no clear line you remember ever crossing. If I might, let me give you another initiation right. Marriage. What is marriage? It's a covenant between two people that was in the works long before they said, I do. Right? They're getting to know one another. They're learning to trust one another. They're putting their faith in one another. They're falling in love with one another. Now, for some of you, it might have been a one-shot deal. Like, you knew the moment you fell in love. You know the moment. Like, some of you, and like, what you do is then you Facebook it, because we read it all the time. Nine months ago today, we had our third kiss, and right? Nobody likes you, because it's obnoxious. Don't do that on your Facebook, right? It's the fourth anniversary of our fourth date. I mean, that's, right? You see those? But for the rest of us... If you were to ask me, well, when did you fall in love with your wife, Kelly? The, the honest answer is, I have no idea. I just can't date it. I don't know when it happened. It sort of snuck up on me. I wasn't opposed to it ever. Do you hear that? I was never opposed to it. <laughs> I'm not sure I was looking for it either. It just sort of, it just sort of happened. 
And so if you're asking me, well, where's that line that you crossed? The answer is, I don't know where that line was. It was just one of those things where we started to get to know one another. We started to trust one another. We put our faith in one another. We fell in love with one another. And I can't date any of that. We can't really go celebrate any of that. But I could say this. On October 24th, 1992, is that right? <laughs> I can't tell you how nervous I feel just saying that date out loud that I'm going to mess that up. But on October 24th, 1992, in front of God and my family and my friends, we got together and said, I do. Until death separates us. And you can signpost that. You can date that. You can celebrate that. That's what baptism is sort of like. It's sort of like marriage where it's something concrete. It's something tangible. So now on October 24th, every year, we get to go out to a fancy restaurant and eat a nice meal and spend time together, right? Because we have a date. There's something that could be signposted in that. And baptism is sort of like that. If I were to ask you, well, when did you repent of your sins? Your answer would be, I don't know, it's sort of ongoing, and there's still others that I'm still trying to deal with now. Well, when did you put your trust in Jesus? I'm not really sure. It just sort of slowly, gradually evolved. Well, when did you put your faith in him? When did you fall in love with him? For some of you, it might have been an instantaneous moment, but my guess is for most of us, it just sort of happened. But baptism becomes that outward manifestation of an inward reality that's real, that's concrete, that's tangible, that's datable. It isn't fuzzy. It isn't ethereal. So I can say on June 7th, 1981, I feel old just saying that. On June 7th, 1981, 30 years ago, I got baptized in the baptistry right behind me. Little Sammy grew up here in this church, got baptized by, and I remember everything about that day. I remember before it happened, begging my parents to get baptized. They tried to put me off, and they should have won. I should have waited longer. But I remember my dad was the preacher at the time, and we were in his office, and we studied together to make sure I knew what I was doing. And after the sermon that he offered that day, he offered an invitation. I came forward. That's what you did. You gave an invitation after every message, and then I came to the front row, and I sat. Then my dad came up and he asked me if I believed that Jesus was the Christ, the Son of God, and I said yes. Then I walked back into this changing room, went to the back changing room and put on, at the time we had like baptism robes, like big fancy robes that I'm sure I was way too small to fit in, but I mean big, big robe over you. And then I went into the baptistry here and I remember my dad baptized me in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. He dunked me under and then the church began to sing hymns because that's what we did. They were all a cappella and we sang hymns. I dried off and got changed, and what happened at the time is church got over, and the whole church would line up on this back wall, this side wall here, and this door opened up, and little Sammy, new baptized little Sammy, came walking out, and the whole church gives you a hug and welcomes you, and I remember Meemaw was there, and I'll never forget, Meemaw said to me, I was nine years old, I remember this, Meemaw said, now not only are you my grandson, you're my brother in Christ. That's what Meemaw told me when I got baptized. And you know what else happened? Flo Keeler kissed me right on the lips. And I remember thinking to myself as a nine-year-old boy, I'm glad I just got baptized because I think I'm going to die right now. But you see what that is? You see what happened on June 7, 1981? It's concrete. It's tangible. It's sort of that Christian initiation rite in which I have memories. I, I know how this works. This seems to be how God designed baptism. Now, having said all of that, I do want to say that baptism is more than just you getting dunked in water as a symbol of a spiritual reality. And that I really do think God is at work in baptism. I think grace is flowing in baptism. And in that, it is somewhat mystical to me. I, it is spiritual. I, I can't even explain all the things that God is doing in it. And so you have things like Romans 6, where Paul says it's a burial cross. And 1 Peter 3, he talks about it as a washing of the conscience. Or John 3 and Titus 3 talks about it as a new birth. 
being entrance into the body of Christ or to Christ himself. Listen to what Paul says in Galatians chapter 3, verse 26 and 27. For in Christ Jesus, you are, all clo- you are all children of God through faith. As many of you as were baptized into Christ have clothed yourselves with Christ. Or 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 12 and 13. For just as the body is one and has many members, and all the members of the body, though many, are one body, so it is with Christ. For in the one spirit, we were all baptized into one body. Jews or Greeks, slaves or free, and we were all made to drink of one spirit. So baptism is connected to getting into Christ, being in the body of Christ. And Acts 2.38, which we just read a little bit ago, it connects to the forgiveness of sins and receiving the Holy Spirit. And so somehow I think all those things are at work. I mean, God is at work in baptism. So it's not just what you're doing. It's not just you doing something. God, have you ever, you ever heard the word sacrament? It's a big fancy church word. What it basically means is a human action and a God action coming together. That's what sacrament means. And I really do think baptism is a sacrament in that it is a human action and it is a God action and they're coming together. You are responding to his grace and he is responding by giving grace. And so some of those things are at work. So baptism in the end is a declaration of intent. Here's what it means to, to, like if you're thinking about getting baptized, here's what it should be about. It's a declaration of intent. What it says is, I'm going to be a disciple of Jesus for the rest of my life. What you're saying is, I'm going to live my life. It doesn't mean you're perfect. I mean, so if you're like, oh, I've got this stuff in my life, and I'm still struggling with this, and I'm a sinner in this way. No, no, getting baptized is not a pledge of perfection. And we don't do it because we've overcome sin. No, no, baptism is simply saying, I am giving my life to Jesus. I'm going to follow after his ways. And you need to know, there are literal ways of Jesus. Like, it's not just some sort of pray Jesus into my heart and, ooh, it's warm, fuzzy, and I feel... No, I mean, there really is a way now I have to treat my wife and my kids and coworkers and the way I spend my money and the way that I use my time. And the, those things are all reflections of the ways of Jesus. And when you get baptized, it is a declaration of intent that says, I'm going to live my life like that, as Jesus calls me to. And I'm not going to get it right all the time. I'm still living by grace, but baptism is a declaration of that intent. And so don't get baptized because your spouse wants you to get baptized. That's a wrong reason. Don't get baptized because your mom wants you to do it or because all your friends in the youth group are doing it or because that's what your family does when you get to be this age. There's only one reason to get baptized, and it is to declare your intent to live after Jesus for the rest of your life. And because of that, in my mind, as you read through the New Testament, it is a voluntary conscious decision. And it's a big decision because we say, for the rest of your life. That's why I think baptism is an adult decision, why here we practice adult believers' baptism. I know many of you come from different traditions that practice infant baptism, those sorts of things, but in my mind, it is for us a conscious decision of the will to say, I'm following Jesus. Now, if you were christened as a baby, it was a decision your parents made on your behalf. And what I would say is, like in like the Catholic Church, you know you, how there's usually, uh, you, you have the infant baptism and confirmation comes later? I love the language of both. I would just reverse it. And what we do here is we have child dedication at birth, which we promise as parents that we're going to raise our children up in the faith. But then there should be a time when that child says, I'm now old enough and mature enough where I'm going to make this decision for myself. I'm going to, I absolve you, mom and dad. I will stand before God and give an account. And when your child can say that, let them be old enough to say it. That's when I think they should get baptized because that's what I think in the end is what it, what it means. And so people ask, well, well, how do we get this whole infant baptism thing anyhow? Well, just by way of just a quick history lesson. Don't, don't lose me in the history. For the first two to three hundred years, baptism was always adult believers' baptism by immersion. Just as you read through the history, as you read through the scriptures, that's what it was. But around 300 A.D., what happens is an emperor named Constantine comes to power, and he, at the end of his life, becomes a Christian, which there's some good news in that. I mean, no more persecution for the Christians, and so it became okay to be a Christian. 
Now, two emperors later, Theodosius I, when he became emperor of the Roman Empire, he declared an edict that you could not be a Roman citizen unless you were a Christian. So imagine this huge shift from a persecuted minority to it is the state religion. If you want to be a Roman citizen, then you also have to be a Christian. So if you're a good Roman family, you want to have all the rights and protections of citizenry for your family and for your children. When you have children born into your family, what do you do? You have them baptized as a symbol that they are a Christian and thus have all the rights of not only being a Christian but a Roman citizen. That stuff doesn't happen until around 300 A.D. and and after. And then what happens is a brilliant theologian named Augustine, I don't know if you've ever heard the word, Bishop Augustine, Bishop of Hippo of Africa, he developed at that time a doctrine to support infant baptism, and he came up with what we call the doctrine of original sin. You ever hear that? The Catholic Church, the doctrine of original sin. What doctrine of original sin says is at birth... You are guilty and sinful. Like just from the get-go. Like, I'm here, world, and you're a sinner, right? The problem is you can't find that doctrine anywhere in the Scriptures. Nowhere. Nowhere does it teach the doctrine of original sin. This was Augustine's way of trying to justify the practice that was already going on in the church. That, in fact, when you read through the Scriptures, you have a totally different view of children and that they're not culpable. I mean, I know your two-year-old when they have a stinky diaper and you say, did you have a stinky diaper and they're lying to you and they say no. I mean, I know they're lying. But they don't have culpability in that because of their age. And you see Jesus' heart towards children as he loves them. And so oftentimes we find people are motivated to get their kids baptized because they're afraid of what happens if they get sick, what happens if they die. And in my theology, I'm telling you, God loves your children, loves them. They're not guilty. They're not culpable. They will not burn in hell. God loves children. Jesus' heart loves children. And so that's sort of the the history of kind of where that came about. But you don't find that necessarily in the scriptures. And here's what I have to say. If you've got a child who's asking questions about baptism and you need some help with that, love to talk to you about that. One resource, if you go to our website, livingstones.cc, there's a little tag that says, tab that says uh, baptism lowdown. There's a PDF document that you can download. And in the back is a section on just issues with children who want to get baptized and what's an appropriate age and how do you kind of walk through that. There's also some hard copies on the, what we call a lobby back there, uh, Uh, for you to take if you don't have a computer. But finally, let me just conclude with this. Baptism is a collision of a serious decision and a celebration. It's full of the seriousness and sobriety that belongs to saying, no, I'm following Jesus for the rest of my life. But at the same time, it is a celebration. And this is why I love when we do it in community together. Like, that's why I love when we get to witness together as a church people being immersed in the Lord Jesus because we get to celebrate together, and oftentimes we've had fried chicken, which I think is a biblical model. And at the same time, it reminds us, it reminds us of our own baptism and our own vows and our own pledge that we want to follow Jesus for the rest of our life. And so just so you get a look, uh, in this past April, we had a baptism service here, and so Doug Harsh put together a little video so you could just kind of see some of those who got baptized. It's not everybody, but just some of those who got baptized uh, this past April. So just take a look at this. It'll give you a picture of what goes on here when we practice baptism here at the Living Stones Church in our baptistry, which, by the way, is right behind this black, black sound board that we take up. So take a look at this video. to lead and live a better life. My whole life is just, I haven't put God first. I just basically been trying to do it on my own 
and I see that I can't do it on my own. And I thought, yeah, I have to do that for myself to feel better completely and to be connected with God. step in my life is to get baptized. I'm taking all my doubts and all my fears and all my struggles and here I am. And I want to bury the old man that I wasn't proud of and start new. I just want to get to know Jesus better and I want to follow him the rest of my life. And I wanted that for myself. I want to be free. Philippians 1.6 says that he who began a good work and you will carry it on to completion until the day of Christ Jesus. Savior Jesus Christ on whatever path he is intended for me to be on. More and more, and I'm just excited to be able to share that now with my new family here at Living Stone. That great? You can clap for that. That's all right if you want to clap for that because it's good. In a couple of weeks here, we're going to have another baptism celebration. Back in April, we baptized over 20 people, and there's another list of, long list of people who were interested on August 28th. So here's what I'd say. If you have never been baptized and you want to be a disciple of Jesus, you should get baptized. And I'd also say to you, uh, not as a salvation thing, but I'd say to you, if you don't remember your baptism, like just you have, there's no signpost for you, there's no tangible concrete memory, you should consider getting baptized. Not because, you know, you were lost and you didn't have Jesus in your life, but as a moment where you get to have a memorable, signpost, tangible, concrete 
I'm giving my life to Jesus, and I can date that, and I can remember that, and have those things attached. Uh, and so on your connection card on the back is even a place to check the box that says, I'm interested in the baptism on, uh, on August 28th. You'll get something in the mail that just gives more information. Here's what to bring. Here's what to dress like, and here's what will, what will happen. We'll get together and have a meeting mid-August to kind of go over questions and talk about that more. But if you've just been thinking about that and praying about that, I just want to offer that to you as an option and an opportunity on August 28th where we will gather together as a church. We will witness it together, and we will celebrate and rejoice together in that. So just like coming to you. So that's what I have for you this morning in terms of just kind of a background of baptism, what it is. And it simply is, it goes back for thousands, of, just think about this, thousands of years of people saying, I'm giving my life to Jesus. And so it's a big deal, one that should be celebrated. So let's call the band back up here and we're going to sing and we're going to pray together. And so let's just bow our heads and let's pray. Father, we give you thanks that you are a God who gives us things that are concrete and real and tangible and dateable. And so in that, even things like baptism, we say thank you for the gift that that is. And Lord, I pray that this morning, those of us who've been baptized will remember and recall what it is that we've committed to you, what we've vowed to you. I ask, Lord, that you give us the courage to continue in that. And for those who are considering it, Lord, I pray that you give them wisdom. And just as you've been working in their life, I pray, Lord, that just even now you would give them what is they need to take their next step, especially if it is in this act of baptism. We love you, and we're grateful that you are a God who rescued us, who loves us, and who gives us grace. And this is why we say we love you. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's all stand together as we sing.